Welcome to MAP, the bi-weekly market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. Mars makes it as easy as possible for you to get your pharmaceutical, medtech or digital health product to the market and of course get the price it deserves. My name is Stefan Walzer, I'm the founder of Mars and a health economist by training and working in the fields of market access, reimbursement, pricing and health economics already since 2004. And now let's learn about the market access and reimbursement systems around the globe. So the famous AMNOC, a very relevant kind of topic. I think it's one of the core processes across health technology assessment or drug assessments in Europe. So let us quickly describe how this really looks like. So first of all, companies can, it's not a must, so it's not mandatory, um, consult the GBA early on, either in order to get their input into the clinical development program. So especially, obviously, the kind of core components and questions like the um, comparator and or generally the study design and clearly also the endpoint as, as one would probably know if you're an expert into the AMNOC, um, the endpoints of relevance for the GBA needs to be patient relevant. So that's also the place where you can let's call it discuss or share ideas on patient relevances for the endpoints. This is the very first step. It's not a must. So you can do that early on in order to get input into the clinical trial program and or you could do that as well shortly before a submission. Let's rather say what we normally recommend is do that maybe nine to 12 months before a submission, but potentially when you have ready your results available of your clinical trial or trials, just keep in mind, the GBA is not discussing clinical trial results in the consultation. It's just about general questions like the definitions and the points I have just raised some seconds ago. So keep that maybe a bit aside. I think the key real and core process then starts when the company uh, is launching the product in Germany, which means there needs to be an EMA approval and then the company needs to place a product in Germany. That is at the time when the price is being published through the IFA in the lower tax in Germany. At that day, which is only happening twice a month, so either at the 1st or the 15th of a month, um, the product would be available. And at that time, the dossier needs to be the latest at the GBA. Keep in mind, the dossier is a quite complex kind of document, clearly. And it is clearly advised as well to go through the completeness check with the GBA, which need to happen three weeks before the actual submission. It is something to plan for. And uh, I think it's really, really helpful, I think, for all of the submissions. So what is happening when the dossier is with the GBA? The GBA is taking the dossier and first of all, obviously doing again the kind of completeness check is then if it's a non-orphan drug uh, is further um, sending that to the ICWIC, which is the kind of, let's call it watchdog in a way for Germany. So they are the HC institution, which are then going through the whole dossier and reviewing it in depth. So they are especially looking at the systematic literature search and the quality of the evidence on the evidence in general, on the patient relevance of the endpoints, etc., etc. And they have three months time for that. So from the time of the submission, uh, you can basically 
calculate three months further, and that is then the time where the ICWIC is sending their evaluation to the GBA. They're not recommending the added benefit or they're not recommending the kind of discussion or reimbursement or anything. They are, they're just giving an advice how they would evaluate the submitted dossier and the underlying evidence. If it is an orphan drug, the ICWIC is only evaluating the number of patients, the epidemiology, and also the cost component of the dossier. The clinical side is then being evaluated by the GBA, but generally in a quite similar rigorous way as ICWIC. The important consideration here is just keep in mind with orphan drugs, there's automatically an added benefit, so positive added benefit being granted. So it's more the question about the level and the probability of the added benefit. So what is then happening? Independent if it's an orphan drug or a non-orphan drug, three months after the submission of the dossier, so the availability of the product in Germany, the, there is a preliminary added benefit being published at the GBA's website. This is then also being communicated to the company. And then the company has basically three weeks time to submit a written statement to the GBA. Important here also, it's not only the, the company who has submitted the, do, the dossier, but also any other scientific community or related company, for example, competitors who could then also submit a written statement. Why is that important? Only institutions or persons related to the disease, obviously, who are submitting a written statement are allowed to come and register to the oral hearing, which is then happening shortly after, roughly a week after the submission of the written statements. Within the oral hearing, the GBA is asking their open questions. It is a kind of question answer, but clearly just one way. So the GBA is clearly um, coming up with the questions. It is a, a kind of sometimes even stressful situation, obviously, and the company can then... Um, answer those kind of questions. Um, four persons from the company can uh, come to the meeting and you have the full board of the GBA sitting in front of you. Normally, the oral hearings lasting for an hour. Um, after that, the company is without any kind of um, answers from the GBA side and the decision at that time, right? It's basically leaving the room and the GBA is then taking some further time in order to assess and finalize that decision on the added benefit. The overall added benefit process with the GBA lasts for overall six months. So at the time of submission plus six months, that is exactly the time when the company receives the added benefit decision by the GBA. With the added benefit decision, the head association of the Satuju Health Insurance Funds, the GKVSV, is also sending already a an invitation to the company for the price negotiation in case there's a positive added benefit because then companies are allowed to negotiate a higher price in comparison to the comparator. That is um, exactly quite clear and there are um, four meetings happening within the after that six-month time period until the company needs to agree on a price together with the GKVSV, with the head association. Those meetings um, can not be shifted, so it's a must-attend. The only thing what you could basically do if really one appointment does really not fit into the calendar is that the company can decline the meeting and just suggest another, a fifth meeting to be added, which is normally not really appreciated by the head association. Within the price negotiations, 
And just keep in mind, we'll have a separate podcast just on the negotiation part in Germany. Um, there are different aspects which, uh, take, which are taken into account. It's reference pricing um, across different European countries. It is also the number of patients, the number of expected patients. A lot of us were contracting parts which are important, uh, like practice exemptions, Praxis Besonderheiten for all of the German speakers. Um, and a couple of further things, I would just relate uh, that to the next podcast when we discuss about the negotiation. So just keep that in mind. After six months at a benefit evaluation, six months of a negotiation, overall 12 months, the AMNOC process being finalized, basically, Within those 12 months, there's free pricing. So the Setutio Health Insurance Funds need to pay the price a company is charging for, independent how low or how high it is. And after those 12 months, the new price might kick in. What if companies do not agree to a price? Then there's the arbitration board, which is happening for another maximum of three months. Just keep in mind, for those additional three months, the free pricing is just further going on. But... If there's an agreement or not, the company has to pay back the difference uh, for those three additional months to the Institute of Health Insurance Funds in Germany. So this is, in a nutshell, the AMNOC process. So core question relays, I mean, I have just said the AMNOC process is now basically in place for 10 years. So I think it's a good timing point um, to evaluate what went well. And I think also to discuss a bit about the different learnings in the AMNOC process. So we have as well invited different guests. We have just um, introduced those as well. And I think uh, it will be really important to also see what were maybe the big successes of the AMNOC process. And I think quite clearly, I personally, I'm very much interested also to see where there might be potential improvement needs within the AMNOC process. Okay, good. Let's just start. Okay. okay. Thank you, Matthias, um, for joining that discussion. So first question around the AMNOC is just generally, I mean, could you just briefly explain also we, potentially with an example what the key differences for you are between the pre and the post AMNOC time? Yes, happy to do it. I mean, we have now AMNOC evidence for about 10 years in Germany and I worked in my payer function also before this time for many years. And it was always very difficult to bridge between physicians with the demand to prescribe new drugs and the sick fund side, who is by nature often a bit critical about new innovative drugs, especially with high prices. And that was a difficult uh, sandwich position for us as a physician's association. Since MNOC, we have very early uh, structured analysis of the data of the potential clinical additional benefit of a product. And that makes it much easier on both sides to discuss with the physicians, um, also critical aspects in comparison to the pharmaceutical industry communications, but also to the sick fund side, because we have the structured evidence analysis, uh, which we can use as an argumentation. So therefore, I think um, MNOC was for us a big step forward um, from this perspective. Okay, very good brief kind of introduction. Would you also share the kind of, um, let's say, statement that the AMNOC was really saving billions of euros for the system? Um, I'm not sure if it really saved so much um, at the end of the day. I think there are different calculations out there from people who are better in calculating than myself. 
But what I think definitely happened is that we have a, a different allocation of spending, that we have um, much less spending for the so-called Me Too product and more focus on spending on real um, therapeutic improvement. If this is overall a saving, I'm doubtful. Mm -hmm. If I look at the overall expenditures over the year during the years, um, I think we can say that we see a quite constant increase um, on the spending for pharmaceuticals in Germany. On average, I would say something between three and four percent. And at least the MNOC avoided that we move to an uh, exponential increase. But um, at least what we can say is that we have a constant increase in the drug spending. And I think that we have a more focused spending of additional money. That would be my summary. Okay, very good. So um, moving maybe a bit, I think I think it's just maybe a step further, right? I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, I was just uh, asking whether maybe the, the monetary kind of savings were a, a big success. I think you explained quite nicely, I mean, how this could and should be maybe interpreted. Um, but in general, what is the biggest success for you with the Amnog really has shown for the system, but also here maybe from the different aspects, right? Maybe from you, from a physician, physician association, but also from a health insurance and a patient perspective. I think real therapeutic improvements um, have a much smoother start into the market than before. Because um, if a drug has really shown a substantial improvement, um, I mean, maybe the biggest or best example are the, is the funding of the hepatitis C drugs. If you compare this to many other European countries where you had a lot of discussions about the value and how to pay for it, which patients are eligible, where we could really manage both and a very good access for the patients, uh, safe prescription for the physicians from, a, from an economic perspective that they didn't have to be afraid of some economic punishment or whatever. And from a third perspective, at the end of the day, due to the upcoming competition, even... I would say, um, working price control. And I think this would have been much more difficult in the, in the times before, before MNOC. Okay, I mean, you just um, raised the point of price control. Um, what do you think about the free pricing for the first 12 months? Is that something which is rather giving a good incentive overall to, let's say, also smoothly from an industry perspective, maybe a launch a product? Or is this more a kind of ready way to, let's say, really press a bit the, the kind of monetary in impact basically out of every drug before you even go into a price negotiation, where maybe I think that's at least the idea, right, to have a fair price after the negotiation? that sometimes uh, gives a hint that it may be an unfair price at the beginning. Um, my experience is that there are definitely, definitely a few cases where we may think, oh, this is overpriced. But on the other hand, um, I think this is often more psychological than a real problem because we all know costs are price times volume. And... To my experience, on average, the physicians in Germany are still cost sensitive, especially with new products. And if you have very expensive products with who do not show a positive benefit rating, we usually do not see very much prescription of them. The physicians have quite early uh, first indications from the ICVIC um, assessment. 
and um, they are cautious then. So I do not really see that this is a very big problem. It's something, of course, you could can argue that it's more consistent to have the negotiated price uh, retrospectively applied from day one. But on the other hand, um, my experience is that if you end up with no additional benefit, you do not have so many prescriptions as a relevant price premium. While if a drug really shows a considerable additional benefit, usually there's not so much of a, of a price discount. So um, I think um, it's a question which is very much discussed, but um, I think it, which is not the main problem uh, to my understanding. Okay. And I mean, because you just raised them kind of main problem, what is, what is the main problem from your perspective? I personally think that the, if we talk about problems, um, it's a question um, how to reevaluate prices and um, to really look after two, three years also with some scrutiny um, if a drug really develops, uh, delivers what was expected and um, then also maybe to really think about uh, do we pay too much and do we have to, to, to lower the price? Um, if not real negative information is coming out, it's possible to maintain your price for a quite long time. And th this is some something where I think um, there may be room for improvement to look more closely after two or four years mm -hmm. or three, four years, maybe um, if the promises really come true. And um, that's, I think, more a weakness um, overall because these are much longer periods where price is paid compared to the first 12 months where you always have a, have a ramp up of the prescription. So you are maybe more thinking as well towards, for example, what is happening in Switzerland, right? Where you have kind of regular, let's say, price checks every two to four years, depending a bit on the indication and the product itself and also on the negotiation. But this is more what is maybe happening also maybe in the, in the Netherlands. I think that's also applied. Is that as well something where you're looking more towards because then you see the, the real impact as well? Yes, I think, um, I mean, we have um, changes in the pricing if comparators become cheaper, like availabilities of uh, biosimilars. We see also changes if uh, new evidence emerges, which improves the benefit rating. But we do not really see something to say, okay, we, we have an, a good trial base database at the beginning, at the launch, at launch. Um, but is this indication of an overall survival benefit, whatever, is it really uh, materializing in, in, in real life? And are we then really happy to, um, or not happy, but to consider to even lower a price if it's not delivered the, 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 the initial promise? I know that this is uh, it's difficult. And my feeling is that both sides do not really touch this area until now. Uh, okay. Do you think maybe it's also still a bit of the issue of, let's say, the kind of different databases between, for example, the different health insurance funds, as obviously we don't know, to let's say, which patients are, first of all, during the negotiation really then be um, uh, insured. And then it's obviously as well a bit of the question to bring all of the data together for consistent analysis, especially maybe with sample sizes, which might not be that huge in terms of incidence prevalence in a given disease. I think it would be at least a relevant step forward if we could at least track the mm. patient population down to the subpopulations. I mean, we have this um, 
um, exercise of um, which makes a lot of sense when analyzing the clinical data, of course, um, definition of subgroups, looking for stratifying factors and so on. But then this um, very often vanishes in the real life data and follow up because we are even not able to track those subgroups on a in, in a consistent way. And I think that would be one of the first sensible steps to have a more solid database and then could think in a direction, as I just mentioned to you, because otherwise uh, it's a great scientific exercise done during the benefit assessment. But um, if, for example, the subgroups cannot be cont continuously tracked, um, it's very difficult to um, see if the benefit assessment really materializes both in a positive or negative way in, in real life. Interesting. Okay, I mean, you, you brought in already a couple of different things like, you know, what really I think is, is, is going well. I think you also include already some kind of ideas that might potentially be a kind of step forward in the future. But what are your, your best practice and worst practice examples maybe as well with respect to the AMNOC cases in the last years? Um, I think best practice is, for example, the whole diabetes area where we hear, heard for many years from the um, from the pharmaceutical industry, it's impossible to uh, have outcome data available quite early and uh, how difficult everything is and impossible. And if we see the development, if we see the data we have for the group of the DPP-4 inhibitors compared to the, uh, to the SGLT-2, for example, where we have quite early additional evidence, which, for example, was uh, empagliflozine, then led to an increase of the benefit rating. So I think this is positive. Um, I know that this is, was not only MNOC-driven, but also by the safety requirements of, um, of regulatory bodies. But um, at the end of the day, it, it helped. Um, or, for example, another positive story are some of the um, therapies, for example, for atopic dermatitis, where we have more let's say, last-line options for patients requiring a systemic therapy um, where we do not see so much, many prescriptions in an absolute number, but where we get the feedback from our physicians that it is good to have those as a last-line options and um, can be prescribed without being afraid. I think the, this is something really good. Um, I think we do not have really bad examples in terms of the MNOC assessment, but I think um, what is a real a problem which we still have, which is getting less now, but um, the issue that we did not um, work on the assessment of pre-MNOC drugs. If we have huge areas like the NOAX, for example, where we have two pre-MNOC and two MNOC products and only because of the free pricing of the two pre-MNOC products, we pay hundreds of millions of euros. We think we could uh, pay all the COVID vaccination out of this price delta if we compare this. And um, I think it, it's clear that you may not uh, reassess every pre-MNOC drug with a remaining life, patent lifetime of one or two years. But there are some big blockbusters where I think more consistency would have, uh, would have helped. 
Okay, thank you. I think that was quite clear. You have also mentioned a bit the kind of, let's say, evidence and the evidence development and everything on that. I think just with the different other discussion beforehand, but also now with the practice examples. Um, can you again explain maybe a bit how also um, a company, maybe the industry, could also come up with a, let's say, the appropriate comparative therapy, also in advance, obviously, because we all know studies are being designed sometimes even years before an actual submission, but also with respect to endpoints where it might maybe be a bit more easy as we have now good examples, good experiences also with the DBA that we can also expect, I think, what might be a patient-relevant endpoint, what might not be potentially accepted. Um, at the end of the day, it's um, amazingly simple, I would say, which uh, often surprises companies. The, the framework of the patient-relevant endpoints is clear. Mortality, morbidity, side effects, improvement of quality of life, and um, such an improvement versus standard of care. And at the end, it's as simple as it is. I think it's really important to understand that Germany focuses on the clinical improvement, We see examples where we where positive benefit ratings and attractive prices were um, achieved by quality of life data, by symptomatic improvements. So um, I think really focusing on this core uh, points is is and was, and I believe will be the key to, to success. And if you think about additional endpoints, always think about the patient relevance of those endpoints. And again, patient relevance is clinical relevance. If you show clinical relevance, there's also a relevant willingness to pay. If you start with complex economic or whatever data, um, you are unlikely to, to succeed. Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's a good one. Could you maybe also make that even a bit more detailed? I mean, could you, for example, explain, you just brought up diabetes as an example beforehand. What might be a patient-relevant endpoint there? Is HbA1c a relevant endpoint? Because some people just claim that this is a clinically relevant endpoint. Um, no, it's not accepted as a patient-relevant endpoint by the GBA. And I think it's also clear that it won't be the case in the future because it's um, the endpoint and the reflection of standard of care. And if we see that the guidelines develop more and more to a patient-individualized HB1AC target, then it's unlikely that uh, maximization of the delta, achieved delta in the HB1AC um, is not um, seen as, an, uh, as a relevant endpoint by the GBA because they want to see with the optimized treatment approach to see the optimized outcome in terms of, um, I mean, it's clear uh, either the direct blood glucose associated endpoints like hypoglycemia or what is at the end of the day, I mean, what is the main goal of the, of the treatment of a diabetes patient? It's the long-term control of the disease and avoidance of the complications um, of diabetes. If you look, I mean, this is not only a benefit assessment thing. If you look, for example, in the disease management programs everywhere, it said, do it patient specific, individualize it and um, try to guarantee the best possible outcomes for the patients in terms of the long-term complication of diabetes. And this is what is reflected. And I think it's, um, I mean, the lessons learned are quite clear and I would seriously consider there are so many success examples and so many examples of endpoints which haven't been accepted in the last 10 years. And um, then 
something couldn't prove the patient its patient relevance over the last eight or ten years, then I would always carefully consider the likelihood um, to change this with the data I bring for a new product um, when I um, submit a dossier to the Federal Joint Committee. Okay, perfect. That makes a lot of sense. I think uh, that was also a very good example, I think, which can also be transferred to other disease areas. Okay, maybe moving to the last bit of the discussion. Where do you see potential improvement needs also within the AMNAC process, besides maybe what you have mentioned early on um, in terms of the, the pricing and also maybe the kind of pre-assessment after two to four years' time? I think we have to think about the, the orphan space a bit. Um, I think it is also in the future necessary to give some support for orphan drugs, especially if, uh, it, uh, if really new therapeutic areas are, are discovered. Um, on the other hand, um, if we talk about areas like PAH, for example, then the question is really why do I need so much more protection in, in such areas? So I think there, there shouldn't be a one-size-fits-all approach for the orphan drugs, but uh, really a, a reflection if in an orphan indication there is already an established standard of care um, or not. And if it is there, then I think it, um, it's a sensible uh, recommendation to ask there for head-to-head -head data also, while in other areas, um, often areas, um, this could be a different question. Okay, very good. And, and then just generally, maybe to, to sum everything a bit up, I mean, we have an election upcoming in September, um, nationally in Germany. Um, and on top, I think we all know the kind of impact uh, of the COVID-19, also in terms of debts and in terms of financial impact, not only the healthcare system, but generally um, is quite significant. What is your expectation independent on who might really win the election and which kind of, uh, let's say, government we finally will have? But what is your expectations, what might happen, let's say, after the elections in September for the next four years for the healthcare system and maybe especially around the AMDOC process? Um, I personally think that the MNOC process by in its core and the, around the benefit assessment uh, will only undergo incremental step-by-step -step changes um, and not really uh, changes um, because of a financial pressure. I think it's... Um, we can assume that there will be more financial pressure on the statutory health insurance system and also a new government needs to organize uh, money, maybe also out of the drug sector. But uh, I think we should distinguish between development of the benefit assessment process and um, uh, savings because with the new or uh, changed benefit assessment process, you will never get quick wins in terms of relevant savings very soon. So if we need money, um, then it's quite simple. Then we start the tendering for biosimilars earlier. Or we think, I mean, we have a long history uh, of temporary um, additional mandatory discounts for all drugs in the market. These are the ways I would anticipate if um, quick wins in terms of savings are needed. And uh, everything about the MNOC process, I think, is more step-by-step -step and more really based on the quality of, of the process. That mm -hmm. would be my expectation, not really a mixture, a way of uh, um, 
changing the MDoc process to uh, get short-term savings or quick savings because I think this is um, not really sensible and that does, if you really need quick money, that doesn't help. Okay, perfect. Very good. So I think that was it. Thank you very much for your time, Matthias. I think that was very good insights, also with good examples. And I think you can now also feel a bit how the AMDAC process really being applied. And I think why it is, I think also be seen also from outside of Germany, quite a success um, story. So great insights from Matthias Flume on the AMNOC process and the learnings, what we can probably all take from the last 10 years of AMNOC. Let's just also see what the future will bring. There is a new election in autumn 2021. And I mean, once we basically broadcast that episode of the podcast, also that election will be gone. So we might even have already some further insights into what changes maybe might happen into the AMNOC process. Overall, I think also what Matthias said, I think it's not only a learning system, what the AMNOC basically presents, but it has really also, I think, adapted over time into the different kind of situations, whether that was maybe from an endpoint perspective, where I think both parties, I would say, the pharmaceutical industry, but also the GBA has basically, let's say adapted, I would not say learned, but adapted to the realities of sometimes also different disease areas. I think the orphan drug area is obviously an important one. I think incentives are clearly given by the EMA, for example, but also, and that was one of the intentions by the Ministry of Health and also by the GBA to also have those incentives from a reimbursement perspective in Germany. Let's just see if this might basically change over time. I think innovation can make it not only to the national, but quite clearly to the regional and local market, meaning to the patients, uh, at least so far. So let's just see how this will evolve over time. Listen further into one of our next AMNOC podcasts, also following in the next couple of months. That was an episode of MAP, the market access podcast provided by Mars Market Access and Pricing Strategy, which is your healthcare consultancy in the German-speaking markets. MAP is available every second week with a new episode, so watch out. And in case you might have questions, contact me directly and or visit our website on www.marketaccess-pricingstrategy.de.